As you think through the stories of the Bible, I wonder if you have a favorite story of battle or conflict. I mean, if you think of all the stories in the Bible that involved conflict, probably David and Goliath has to come to your mind first, right? What a great story that is. And the armies of Israel have turned and are running away, grown men in flight, running as fast as they can from this giant Goliath. And then David, of course, stands up and in the name of the Lord, conquers that guy with this slingshot and then takes the giant's own sword and kills him and cuts his head off. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, it's like the stuff of movies. One of my favorite conflict stories in the Bible or battle stories of the Bible, and there are many really, is, uh, has to be Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. Uh, remember on Mount Carmel, remember when uh, Elijah had prayed, Israel had sinned, it hadn't rained for three years, they set up this, this arena for a showdown, the false prophets of Baal build an altar and then uh, they pray to their gods to rain down fire and light their altar on fire, their sacrifices on fire and nothing happens all day long. Elijah all by himself, kind of leaning against the tree there, heckling, mocking, calling them out. And then, of course, he has water dumped on his altar. He prays. God sends down fire from heaven, consumes the, the sacrifice, the altar, the stones, the wood, and leaves nothing but a burnt hole in the ground. It's just a great story. And wicked King Ahab and an even more wicked King Je- Queen Jezebel funding these false wicked prophets. And there's Elijah head to head taking them on. They're great stories, aren't they? And it's just like the showdown at the OK Corral. It's, ah, it's good stuff. I want you to have that showdown mentality as you turn to Matthew chapter 15 with me to another story of confrontation in the Bible. Now, this is a battle of words that we find in Matthew chapter 15. And, and even if you are just um, uh, reading through, through the gospel and you ran into this story, it might not impact you as a, 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 a battle story. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of tension in this passage. And it will help you understand it if you kind of have this light versus darkness, this good versus bad confrontation. I mean, nobody gets punched in the mouth. It's all words. It's Jesus. It's the Pharisees. But I'm telling you, it is a story of conflict. You might reach for your notes that are in your bulletin if you enjoy filling in the blanks there and using that as a listening guide. I trust that it's helpful. We will have a list of words today that that will guide us through the passage and, and with which we will hang our thoughts on. I found in the early service that I could only get through point one of our sermon today, so we'll have to pick it up next week. But I think this is a really interesting passage of Scripture. Really interesting passage of Scripture. And I want to tell you, um, you stay with it, and you listen, and when we finish this passage out, you tell me if it doesn't hit you right between the eyes and right in the heart. Jesus is going to address the heart of the matter, and the matter... It's the matter of the heart. 
And uh, what a powerful passage of Scripture. Well, we're reading in Matthew. We're in chapter 15. We've been preaching through Matthew. In fact, before we start to read our text for today, let's just remind ourselves that we've had, you know, a couple weeks ago, and we look back in chapter 14, Jesus has fed the 5,000 men and their families with the little boy's lunch. We Then they moved on. He makes the disciples get in a boat to go across the the Sea of Galilee there in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, he comes walking out on the water. Peter's so excited, he jumps out of the boat. We don't really know what to do with all that, but it's a great story. And Jesus confronts them on their lack of faith and why they doubted him. And boy, we can identify with that, can't we? And then we never really finished the last three verses of the chapter 14. And since we're going through the book, let's, let's read those verses. And note how this chapter 14 ends, and then we transition into chapter 15. Verse 34 of Matthew 14, And when they had crossed over, that would be the lake there of the Sea of Galilee, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, that's Jesus, they recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region, and they brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, And as many as touched it were made well. I mean, can you just imagine that? Everywhere Jesus goes, they find him. And then these pitiful, broken people whose lives have been so impaired, so difficult in this era, with the lack of helpful medicines so much, uh, their lives so difficult from oozing sores or malformed limbs, blindness, all they did was touch the hem of his garment. Don't you love how our Lord Jesus just heals them? What a wonderful Lord Jesus we have. And the disciples are there taking it all in. They're to be learning from this. He's the master of the universe. Don't ever forget that. And so then Matthew bridges into chapter 15 and begins with, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus. So we don't really know how much time goes by. We know that he's been ministering. The crowds are finding him. They're touching the hem of his garment. He's healing the sick. It's most remarkable. And then Matthew picks up with his next story. And he says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Let's continue to read. Let's read our text in its entirety. And even though we won't get through the last half, verses 1 through 20 all fit together as a section. And let's just read it. It's a really interesting passage of Scripture. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And you kind of want to go, Ooh, And he answered them, okay, Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is such a convicting verse, isn't it? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And he called the people to him, Jesus did, and he said to them, Hear and understand. Verse 11, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and murder, and adultery, and sexual immorality, and theft, and false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I don't know if that strikes you as interesting, but I think that is a fascinating passage of Scripture. I trust you'll benefit as we break it down. You look at your notes and you notice that the passage divides itself into two halves. Verses 1 through 9, I've titled, Jesus Challenges the Pharisees. And he does. You could really almost flip that title around. And it's the Pharisees challenging Jesus. And he deals with them. And then he turns in that same context... And the second half, verses 10 through 20, are Jesus teaching his disciples based on what's just happened. And it's really interesting. Well, the first thing I want you to see, letter A, is that there's confrontation in this passage. It doesn't pop right off the page, but I want you to notice, okay, so Matthew says then, so we don't know exactly when, but the next thing that he recounts and what's happening in the chronological ministry of our Lord is that Pharisees, okay, these are religious leaders of the day, they know the law of Moses. They are, uh, throughout the New Testament, they are regularly condemned for their hypocrisy and for their hardness of heart. Um, and scribes, these are people who are in charge of preserving the written word of God and teaching it as well. But I, what I want you to notice, and what helps us understand that this is a planned attack on our Lord is that the Pharisees, these Pharisees and scribes come clear up to Gennesaret off the Sea of Galilee from Jerusalem. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Essentially, headquarters sends out a SWAT team of Pharisees to go try to upset and tear down the ministry of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what's happening. Go find him and tear him down. Destroy his ministry. And they're always lurking about. And I want you to notice, secondly, letter B, then that they do find a point on which to make an accusation. So letter B, here's their accusation. And they they form this accusation as a question. So they come up from Jerusalem and they watch Jesus... Right? And it's a little bit like, remember when we had the Sermon on the Mount? We spent a lot of time there. And in the context of teaching the Sermon on the Mount, it regularly said that he gathered his disciples with him and then the crowds gathered. But as you unfold the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that regularly throughout that message, Jesus is shooting zingers back to the Pharisees because they're lurking around the outsides of the crowd. And I often reference them as kind of like coyotes. 
You know, they're like coyotes out there just kind of slinking through the brush, looking for a weak thing on which to attack. And that's a little bit the picture I have here. So they come, this SWAT team of Pharisees and scribes, and they're slinking around as the people are coming to Jesus. They're touching his garment. They're being healed. And then all of a sudden they have their aha moment. We got him. Let's get him on this one. And here's the accusation, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You need to know that that's what's got them choked up. And here's the tradition that they break. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And, you know, we read that and say, ooh, they really got them now. So what is this all about? They're watching Jesus. They're watching the disciples. And then they come in for the attack like a cobra striking. And they say, they're, they're accusing him. They want to tear him down. They want to discredit his ministry. They want to show that he is not spiritual. And we have observed that your disciples eat without washing their hands. Well, first of all, you need to understand. This doesn't have anything to do with hygiene. All right? We're paranoid about germs. They were not paranoid about germs back then. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't even know germs existed, essentially. And so it does not have to do with hygiene. It has to do with a ceremonial washing. All right, so you need to know that, that Pharisees were meticulous students of the Word of God, and there was instruction in the Old Testament of, a, of, of cleansing your hands before you eat. What they would do is take a mount of water that was about as much water as would fit in an eggshell or an eggshell and a half, And they wouldn't scrub their hands with soap, but they would pour it, somebody else would pour it, and they would hold it so that the water came over their fingertips and flowed into their hands and down their elbows, and they would hold up their hands and have this rinsing, and that it was a a symbolic purification. Now, I suspect by this time, they didn't even know why they did it, but notice what they are concerned about. They are not concerned about violating the Word of God. They are, see, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to attack them where they're violating the Word of God. What they're concerned about is that the disciples have been violating the tradition of the elders. Tradition. Oh, that's not how we do it around here. No, no, no. Did you see him? We never do that. How did this happen? Now let's just stop for a minute and, and let's look at, let her see, some of the regulations under which they lived. Okay, you have to understand the, the way the Pharisees thought. And they lived under an, a tremendous burden of, of spiritual regulations. You have to ask yourself, don't you, how did it get this way? Here they are in the time of Jesus, so, you know, about A.D. 30. And these are the Israelites. These are God's people. And we generally think very poorly of Pharisees. But I want to warn you a little bit that in a lot of ways we're not fair to Pharisees. Now, we're down on Pharisees because Jesus was down on Pharisees. He could look into their hearts. These are the guys that when Jesus would heal somebody like a man with a shriveled hand, if it was the Sabbath when he did it, and it often was because he was poking the Pharisees in the eye about the fact that they did not love their neighbor as themselves or they did not love their fellow man. They loved their rules more than they loved a person. Therefore, they were duplicitous. 
All right, always talking about God and his word, but they didn't love people, for example. How did it get that way? Because Pharisees, and Jesus was down on them, so we're kind of down on them. But let's talk about Pharisees for just a second, because really there is a lot about Pharisees that is very admirable. For example, they loved the word of God. Pharisees loved their Bible. Now, to, to the Jewish mind, the Bible was the Old Testament. Even to those who are in Judaism today, they do not acknowledge the New Testament as the Bible or Scripture. They call the Old Testament the Bible. And particularly, they loved the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. And for that matter, they loved Moses. And they loved Abraham, and they were very proud of the fact that they were God's chosen people, and they understood that they were God's chosen people. And they were committed to loving God as as much as they could figure it out and that they could do it. They loved God, and they loved their Bible. In fact, they loved the Word so much that they memorized the Word. That's, That's honorable. They knew the Bible. They memorized the They memorized the Psalms. They memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In fact, if a Pharisee came into our service today and they got to know us, they would be horrified at how little we know about our Bibles. They were committed to God's word And they were driven to do the will of God as they understood it being taught in the Word of God. So we ask ourselves, if they loved the Word and they cared about the Scriptures and they knew the Scriptures, how did they get to this place of legalism and caring more about the traditions of men than they did the actual Word of God? I think it's helpful for us to think this through for a second. First of all, I think it got this way out of a desire to obey. A desire for obedience drove them to study the Word of God even to the nuance and the meticulous instruction of the law and make sure that they obeyed it on every point. They didn't want to miss anything. I think that's admirable. And we have entire sections of our Bible we've never even read. We don't even know what God says there. And they studied and they got their notepads out and they wrote lists and they made lists of everything that God wrote down so that they would miss nothing, so that they would obey every part of it. And so it's it starts out honorable. It starts out really, really well in that I want to know God. I want to know God's word. And I'm so driven that I'm going to pick up every little tiny part of the law and I'm going to make sure I know it. And they make lists of all these things only to help themselves obey the word. And they're also, you need to understand in in their context and their history, they did not want to repeat the failure of their past history. They did not want to repeat history. What had happened? Their entire nation had been blown up. Nebuchadnezzar had come down from the north. He had taken their young people. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had destroyed their places of worship. They had come in and destroyed the walls. They had taken taken their people, blown up their cities. And for, for decades and centuries even, they were scattered and they didn't have an identifiable nature nation. And they understood that the reason that God had allowed that was because they had not obeyed the word. They had stopped keeping the Sabbath. 
They had stopped taking Sabbath rest. They had stopped their sabbatical years. And God judged them. You read about that in the book of Daniel, for example. And Jeremiah talked about it. And so they were in fear of repeating history. And so they think to themselves, we must obey every part of the word of God, otherwise God is going to judge us again. I mean, that's understandable, isn't it? And thirdly, you need to know that it had to do with the importance of teaching the next generation. All right, so Deuteronomy 6, for example. In Deuteronomy 6, we don't have to take time to turn there. That's the passage where it says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and you should teach it to your children and you should teach them every time they rise up and every time they sit down and every time you go through your door and every time you go out the gate and in the morning and at night, you should always be talking about the Lord, teaching the Lord, teaching, teaching our children everything. And it talks about keeping the Word of God in front of you. Let the Word of God be in front of you all the time. And, and so somebody had an idea one day. He said, I know how to keep the Word of God in front of me. They took little pieces of paper and they wrote Scripture on it. And they wrote the Law of God on it. And they packaged it up and they put it in a little box and they tied a ribbon to it. And they tied it around their forehead. And they put it on their forehead and they walked around. And that way, everywhere they went, the Word of God went in front of them. That's not dumb. I want the Word of God to lead me. And so as they taught the next generation, listen, you need to understand at this point, much of their teaching, most of their teaching is oral. It's oral tradition. And so they have their children doing what? They have their children memorizing. And they memorize the law of God as it was given to Moses. And, then, and they add things. And they, and they, you ever try memorizing the book of Leviticus? Their children memorized it. They knew every part of it. And the rabbis would gather them around and they would repeat and they would catechize it, for example. And they would repeat it. And in the morning they had prayers to pray. And at noon they would pray prayers. And at nighttime they would pray prayers. And they would recite their verses. And they would recite their, the, the words of Moses and the Pentateuch and all that had been catechized. And the rabbis would gather the young people around. And it was their job and the parents' job as well to pass on this truth to the next generation. And, that, and so they would have the children repeat and repeat and repeat. And then some little boy or little girl would raise his hand and say, um, Teacher, what does that mean? And so the teacher would explain the scripture. And then to help them understand, he would have the children memorize his explanation of what the scripture was. And the next thing you know, the children are having to memorize all of the rabbi's explanations of scripture alongside of scripture. And then the rabbi, another rabbi comes along and he thinks it's important for the young people to learn in their synagogue area to learn. And he, he has a commentary on the scripture and they memorize the commentary on the scripture. And the next thing you know, we have layer upon layer. And then the, the fourth thing we see is the natural tendency of the heart to turn towards legalism, a drift towards legalism. It's like, okay, if I'm to, if I'm to honor the Lord in the morning and I'm to honor the Lord during the day and at night and, I, and as I rise up and I sit down, then the next thing you know, I can't get up out of a chair without quoting something that the rabbi taught me to quote. Oh, I just got up out of a chair. I got a quote. And so the next thing you know, it's all bent into a legal bent. It's all bent into their list and their checklist. I've had my devotions. I said my prayer. I'm checking this off. I put my money in the offering plate. I did everything. My hair is the right length. I'm wearing the right kind of clothes. Everything's just right. And I got it all packaged up because that's what they, that I've been taught to do. And, and now I feel really spiritual. And can you see how, how generation after generation after years and years and years... 
And at the time of Jesus, there's still oral tradition going on, but you need to know that by this time now, what they had focused on, and, and you add to this, that there are now experts in the law and scholars. You see, that's the tendency of the human heart as well, right? Men who had given themselves to the full-time study of the Word of God, and they, they, they were just full of themselves and the, and the lifelong study of the Word, and they wrote commentaries on what it meant, and, and they taught everybody their commentary on what it meant. And, and so now the Word of God is being minimized, and the tradition of the elders and what has been taught, and what they taught has been an explanation of Scripture is what is focused upon. And the next thing you know, as oral tradition moved into written commentaries, you now have the listing of all of these things that have been taught generation to generation to generation, and it's voluminous, big books full of stuff that everybody has to know on how to do everything. And, and granted, it's all based on the law of Moses. You take the book of Leviticus, for example, and you have all kinds of intricate details. You can sew your clothes with this kind of thread, but you can't that kind of thread. And you can eat this kind of fur, food, and you can eat uh, food with a, you know, a bird that has a crop, but don't eat food with a, a bird with a web foot without a crop. And you can eat a split hoof, an uh, animal with a split hoof that chews the cud, but you cannot eat an animal that has a split hoof but doesn't chew the cud and all these kinds of rules and that's just scratching the surface and then the questions that came up and then the rabbis all sliced and diced it and had their rules and, and so by AD 200 all this is in writing in Jesus' time it's still oral and so I thought it was interesting just to kind of note that, that this is where the Mishnah has come from you've heard that word maybe the Mishnah okay so the Mishnah is a text uh, book of all of these Jewish traditions that are in writing now. Okay, it's, so it's, it's not the word of God. It's the word of men. It's the commentaries of men written down in the Mishnah. But then there's all kinds of questions about what the rabbis taught them. And so they wrote another book called the Gemara, which is a, a compilation of the interpretations of the commentaries in the Mishnah. They put that all together along with some other writings. And that is what the Talmud consists of. And, it, and you memorize the Talmud even, and it's a huge book, and it has detail, and it had sections. And it had long sections in it in categories like how to, how to plant your seeds. We'll see this in Matthew chapter 23. But they, they had rules about the proper and spiritual way to plant your garden. And they had all kinds of rules. And even like, so for example, what we are most familiar with and we talked about early on in, in Matthew was like the keeping of the Sabbath, for example. It, it wasn't just remember the Lord your God and keep the Sabbath to keep it holy, but that's when they started counting how many steps you could take in a, on a Sabbath day and it would be a Sabbath day journey. And if you took too many steps now, you violated the Sabbath. Well, that's not in the Word of God at all, but that was the interpretation of the rabbis and in their commentaries and that's what they made you memorize and that's what they could check off on their checklist and they became, they became legalists to the core. And so to keep the law of God, you had to do it the way they said to do it or you weren't keeping the law. And the next thing you know, everybody's just focused on checking off the list of the way the rabbi said to do it. And there's another section in the Talmud that ended up there. It's oral tradition at the time of Christ. And it had to do with purification and cleansing. And it was chapter after chapter after chapter. And in there, it was taught that you needed to wash your hands with this kind of washing before you could eat or you were ceremonially unclean. 
And that washing of the water, you see, is you don't know what you touched or you shook somebody's hand who had something unclean on it. You know, and, and you don't know what you've been touching exactly out there. And so then before you eat, do this, and that way you don't contaminate yourself. And that way you're holy before the Lord. And you're worried about whether you poured this little water. To the point that the rabbis taught that if you were going to eat and water was four miles away, you walk four miles and do your washing of your hands before you would eat. Another rabbi taught his followers, and this is in writing as well, and these writings after A.D. 200, so we know exactly what they wrote down, a lot of it. And, and, and he said, if you were starving to death and you had food and you didn't have your washing, you would be better before God to just starve to death than eat the food because you couldn't do the washing. It would be sinful. So you can see that there's just incredible distortion now that took a few minutes, but that helps us understand what's going on here, doesn't it? That these Pharisees are watching the disciples and the disciples are just disregarding the traditions of the elders and all that the rabbis are teaching everybody and that everybody has memorized. And so, letter D, they confront Jesus and I, they ask Jesus about this, but what I want you to see is that they ask a question of Jesus, all right? It's an accusation, letter B. It was an accusation, and it was based on the violation of their regulations. But what I want you to see in verse 3, that Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter where they violate the Scripture. Violations is letter D, violation. Notice what Jesus answers. He, that's Jesus, verse 3, answered them, and said, and why do you break the commandment of God for your tradition? Okay, so here's the setup. The Pharisees look at Jesus, accuse his disciples of violating the tradition of men, and they ask him about it in an accusative manner, and Jesus totally disregards their accusation and their question. And he doesn't answer it. It's the Jim Shoopy method of teaching. You ask a question, I ask you a question back. You know, no one's more like Jesus than Jim Shoopy. It's like, well, you're the teacher, I'm the student, give me the answer. Now let me ask you this question. All right? So Jesus says, all right, you ask me a question about my disciples, I'll ask you a question about you. And it has to do with violation and you violating the word of God. Look what he says. For God commanded you, verse 4, honor your father and your mother. That's Exodus 20.10. It's the fifth commandment. We know that that it may go well with you. And also, Exodus 21, 17, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Okay? He's talking to the Pharisees. I'm telling you, the conflicts, it's getting strong now. And Jesus says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. In other words, they have totally ignored and forgotten what God's word says and what the point of the word is. And all they care about is their new set of rules and their traditions. Let's quickly turn to Mark chapter 7, and we'll just stay there a second, but I want you to see Mark's account because he explains something to us that is very, very helpful here. This is Mark chapter 7, and let your eyes go down to, uh, let's just begin, say, with verse 8. Mark chapter 7 and verse 8. 
This is the same parallel passage in Mark's account that we're studying in Matthew chapter 15. And, he, and we're cutting right into the middle of it. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Mark's account, verse 8, Math, Mark 7. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Their traditions totally violated the actual word of God and the spirit of the word of God. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Exodus 21, 17. But you say, but you say, you Pharisees say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, and then Mark explains it parenthetically, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and many such things you do. Back to Matthew 15. They do a lot of this kind of stuff. Here's what Mark's saying. Okay? There's no social security system in Israel. There's no nursing homes. Children have to take care of their parents. All right? But Pharisees are a lot like a lot of other people I know. They love money. And they love things. Nice stuff. And so when their parents are elderly and need their assistance, they need to liquidate some assets to help provide for their parents. They don't want to do that. So they don't love their father and mother. They weren't honoring their father and mother. And here's what they came up with in their little set of rules. They came up with like this code word. And if you said this word, it was the same binding nature as saying an entire vow Okay, so they got a shed full of stuff out back and they got a garage full of stuff and they got bank accounts. You know anybody like this? And they got stuff everywhere and they love their stuff and they're storing more stuff and they buy another shed to put more stuff in and they just love their stuff and, and their savings and they just got... And their parents need it, but ah, I really like my stuff and I don't want to spend my money. So they got up this idea and they said, you know, if something is dedicated to God, you can't give that away because it's holy. So their code word was Corbin. And so if their mother or father needed their money, they would take their money and hold it out before God and say, Corbin, and it's now dedicated to God. And so nobody can touch it and you're not allowed to give it away. And so they would say to mom and dad, mom and dad, I love you. I'm sorry, but everything I have is dedicated to God. Aren't I really your spiritual child? And so their mom and dad finally pass on. And now they have their stuff that's been dedicated to God that they didn't want to liquidate to take care of their mom and dad. And they made another rule and all they had to do was say Corbin again, not Corbin again, but Corbin over their stuff. And so then they could reverse the contract with God. And now it was all back in their pocket again. And Jesus knew this. And he looks at him and he says, you hypocrites. You're talking to me about my disciples violating the tradition of the elders for this little tiny eggshell full of water running down their hands and down off the ends of their elbows because they, they have done that before they ate. And you're telling me you say Corbin with your stuff and you dishonor your father and your mother and you violate scripture completely, you hypocrites. And he goes on to say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Bam. Is that a powerful reality or what? And we spout off and we talk and we carry on and Jesus this and Jesus that, but our hearts are far from Him. We make up all these little rules 
Oh, there's a lot here, isn't there? Jesus says, in quoting Isaiah, verse 9, In vain do they worship me. In vain they worship me. It is worthless worship. Teaching as doctrines their own commandments. Wow. Do you know anybody like this? Do you know anybody that plays games with God? Do you know anybody who's more worried about their set of little rules and checking off their checklists and, and feeling spiritual and everything's just right and, and we, we look just right and we do just right and we jump through our little hoops and we even put a little money in the offering plate. It was probably only 9%, not 10%, but, you know, Corbin. I find this very convicting. And Jesus looks right into the heart you know what the essence of the matter is? And we'll cut it off right here and pick it up next week as we continue to look at this concept because Jesus is going to teach some very important things. So listen, the point that Jesus is going to get to is you better quit worrying about washing your hands and you better have a clean heart. You better have a washed heart. Because though you're saying one thing, your heart is far from God. I mean... Do you struggle? Am I the only one here struggling with a divided heart these days? Am I the only one that wants to say Corbin over some things and not give them over to God? This is very convicting. And I think we need to continue to pursue it. Yet again, another week and our time is exhausted. Would you stand and bow your heads with me, please? And don't go into release mode yet, okay? Don't go into departure mode yet. I think we need to stand here as a congregation for just a minute. We need to examine our hearts. You remember when God was picking out a king in Israel for the very first time, and they were struggling to find the right guy. God kept rejecting men that they held up before him as good. And he reminded them that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, some of us have become really good at outward conformity. What is the condition of the heart? Some of us are really good at honoring God with our lips, but maybe our heart is far from God. And we got the lingo down, don't we? And we know all the words to all the songs, but our hearts are way, 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 way over somewhere it ought not be. Can you be honest with God right now? You ask God to wash your heart? There's two kinds of hearts here today, I think. There's the hard heart that's never come to Christ. You've never yielded to Jesus Christ in salvation. You've not been to the cross. You've not laid down the burden of your sin and allowed Jesus Christ's blood to wash you of all sin and accepted by faith His finished substitutionary work in your place and been born again in a new creation in Christ. Maybe your heart needs to turn from uh, a hard, stony heart into a tender heart before the Lord and accept this free gift of His salvation. I'm also wondering about those of us who've been in, in church world forever and raised up in Christian families and some of you young people and some of you old people and our hearts are divided and our hearts are not washed. Would you ask God to work in your heart right now? 
And I think the Holy Spirit needs to keep working throughout the week here on us. You do that. Father, we need your help. It's hard for us to be honest with ourselves. It's hard for us sometimes to even understand the truth about how we live out our Christianity. Father, would you keep us from Corbin games? And would you help us to have undivided hearts before you, washed, scrubbed hearts, clean before you, given over to your word? Help us not to be hypocrites, duplicitous, playing games with you. Where we need convicted, Father, please convict us. Where we need shown these things and where it needs to be revealed to us, I pray this for myself as well, that you would just reveal this to us. Accomplish your purposes in us as individuals and as a congregation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.